to prevent the boys, which is us. The boys you'd want to prevent. Um, <laughs> should we start? <laughs> yes. Welcome to Super Superstitious, the paranormal podcast that looks at the science behind the spooky and strange. Oh yeah, I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And welcome back to another week, gang. Um, and welcome to first time listeners. If anyone is showing up to this episode for the first time as our show, I don't know what I'm even saying. If this is your first time listening to this show. What Jake said. Then uh, yeah, we, we tend <laughs> to look so at- We're so sorry. We, <laughs> It probably gets better. We tend to look at yeah different weird phenomena from around the world um, and uh, and examine any possible scientific explanations behind those weird spooky things. This week we are continuing our special August, August around, around the world. world. <laughs> and um, stereo echo that time. Yes, <laughs> uh, stereo echo. Uh, reminds me of something. I was just exactly going to say. And this Stereo week, Rodeo is a Rusted Root album. Mm-hmm. Okay, do a third one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and this week, I believe we are headed to the continent of Africa. But before we get into that, I do want to just bring up um, just a point of clarification for the show in general. So last Go week, on. Cinema Ways, which is Twitter handle, at Cinema Ways, tweeted to us, quote, more field reports, please. Thanks. Those are amazing. I do want to thank Cinema Ways for reminding us that we have a Twitter, which we <laughs> frequently forget about. Uh, and I initially read that as special reports. It took it to mean super duperstitious special reports, which is heavily a researched, like carefully planned out two-part thing we sweat so hard we to make. We work really hard to make and stuff. But actually it was field reports, as in the dispatches from the fire killer himself, Sean Wayne Kulisuskis. Um, a day later, in a review to uh, a review of our show, user Suck on My Balls said, "I thought it was Suck Amy Balls." Suck Amy Balls <laughs> said, "Quote: Love it. Great mix of humor and spookiness. Shouts to Jake and Wyatt for all the good content. Keep it up, and please more Fire Killer. One hundred emoji crying laughing emoji. <laughs> Thanks, Suck Amy Balls. Thank you, Suck My Balls. Uh, but yes, to make it clear to everyone out there, Fire Killer is kind of our show's." gross batman exactly we have no control over his her its posts updates field reports what have you yeah and to just really pull the curtain back this is uh, so uh, first of all yeah if you're a first time listening to the field reports in question are dispatches from an enigmatic and deeply charismatic individual who has had multiple run-ins with the phantom of the chicago indeed and for even firster time listeners the phantom of the chicago <laughs> basically just a big bat monster it's been sighted in the greater chicago area for a while oh wow. um we've been we mentioned it first in episode two and we've been updating folks on it ever since mm -hmm. our correspondent sean wayne aka good looking but will whoop your ass mm -hmm. um we just want to specify this is not a character we put on this is not no, a bit we're doing. This is a very real person out there in the world that we do call on for support by burning a giant totem made out of drugs and guns. Exactly. And that's how we are able to summon... Sean Wayne. Sean Wayne, um, a.k.a. Biggest Dick Guy. So, yeah, we aren't writing those. We are receiving emails that Indeed. have that... We, so you know as much about the fire killer as we do. We're just honored that uh, he has... Chosen our show to bequeath his knowledge, knowledge to yeah, and that uh, he's putting his life on the line to keep Chicago safe. Indeed, he's had two tough run-ins already so far. And yeah, I'm 
And so if you want to see those in full there at um, superduperstitious.com slash field reports. He's a hero in the field. Yes. So the point is that we're just glad folks are enjoying the thrilling adventures of our phantom fighting friend in the Woody City, but he is not us. He's not some just kind of goofy thing we're doing. We're really getting these emails. <laughs> and we're loving them as much as you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go ahead and check out the full field reports, superduperstitious.com slash field reports. And yeah, back to uh, August around Round the, the world. world. So let us launch into some stories about Africa. Africa. I do believe you are up first. Ooh, then allow me to begin. <laughs> I will. Thank you. In the 16th century, an English sailor named Andrew Battle or Battelle Lloyd Webber. <laughs> was captured by the Portuguese off the coast of Africa. Battelle, kept on the mainland, described two kinds of monstrous man-like apes oh. that could occasionally be seen prowling around the campfire. Quote, oh God, Wyatt. <laughs> That's what he had to say. <laughs> Interesting. For folks at home, I am simply wriggling around. I'm a big-time wriggler, wriggling <laughs> in my chair, adjusting things Quite constantly. A I'm a squirmy worm. And, and, just kicked the and mixer. I kicked the mixer <laughs> with my squirm foot. <laughs> and I'm now done. And I have settled in, wriggling complete for now, <clears throat> without further ado. <laughs> Quote, here also are two kinds of monsters, which are common in these woods and very dangerous. Mm. The greatest of these two monsters is called Pongo in their language, and the lesser is called Engeko. This Pongo is in all proportions like a man but that he is more like a giant in stature than a man. Mm. For he is very tall and hath a man's face, hollow-eyed, with long hair upon his brows. His face and ears are without hair, and his hands also. His body is full of hair, but not very thick. And it is of... He's eaten a lot of hair before this guy saw him. <laughs> yeah. But not very thick, and it is of a dunnish color. He differeth not from a man, but in his legs, for they have no calf. He goeth always upon his legs, and carrieth his hands clasped upon the nape of his neck when he goeth upon the ground. No calf? Calfless. Huh. They sleep. Anyway, mm. Keep going. They sleep in the trees and build shelters from the rain. They feed upon fruit, which they find in the woods, and upon nuts, for they eat no kind of flesh. And it has its hands on the back of its neck while it's walking. He walks around like he's relaxing really hard all the time like this. Okay, yeah. Huh. Apparently. So I know I'm, I'm several steps behind in the description, but it's just taking that long to process this. That's fine. What's happening? And uh, they are purely herbivorous. Herbivorous. Indeed. Herbivorous. Herbivorous. You fucker. <laughs> <laughs> they cannot speak and have no more understanding than a beast. They go many together and kill many persons that travel in the woods. Many times they fall upon the elephants, which come to feed where they be, and so beat them with their clubbed fists and pieces of wood that they will run roaring away from them. Those pongos, as pongox, <laughs> those pongos are the never- pongox. <laughs> Live under the ground. Those pongos are never taken alive because they are so strong that ten men cannot hold one of them, but yet they take many of their young ones with poisoned arrows. Jesus. The young bongo hangeth on his mother's belly, and with his hands clasped fast about her- so that when the country people kill any of the females, they take the young one which hangeth fast upon his mother, said that already when they die, they cover the dead with great heaps of boughs of, and wood, 
which is commonly found in the forests. So as a dying act, they pull a bunch of boughs of... (laughs) (laughs) I think the others... Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) You... I was Fucker. being <laughs> I was being fucksacious. The Seychelles. Three hundred years later, on October seventeenth, nineteen oh two, Oscar von Beringa, a German explorer, quote, suddenly noticed a troop of large black monkeys while climbing a volcano in eastern Congo. Quote, we were able to shoot two of these monkeys, he wrote, which hurtled down the gorge of the crater with an incredible rumble. That von Berg, uh, Beringer then found himself, quote, unable to classify the monkey is not surprising, as he was the first European to effectively collect a specimen of a mountain gorilla, mm. which also, spoiler alert, was what Andrew Lloyd Webber was talking about before. <clears throat> I was thinking, you're talking about these white people seeing these things, like, it sounds like you're just seeing a great ape for the first time. Yes, indeed. So there you go. But the language choices. In our current era, most of us grew up understanding that gorillas and chimpanzees are native across Africa, but it is helpful and illuminating, I think, to recall that these were relatively recent discoveries for Western science. In that light, it may come as a surprise that, across many parts of Africa, there have long been tales of other elusive large apes, apes that are decidedly not gorilla and yet much bigger, stronger, and braver than chimpanzees. Not as horny as bonobos. Yeah, and they don't fuck as much as bonobos. (laughs) In Malawi, they are referred to as Ufiti, which means ghost of the supernatural, Mm. and described as being between four and five feet tall, black with long hair and having no tail and a broad chest. Almost 2,000 miles or 3,100 k's away, in the Congo's far north, is the Billy Forest. Here, deep tropical rainforests are broken by patches of savanna, and dense jungles, long-winded civil war, and other barriers to Western human encroachment have left the region relatively pristine for ages. Hmm. As with the mysterious Ufiti in Malawi, indigenous peoples of this area have long told of two distinct kinds of great ape. In local parlance, there are the tree beaters, which disperse high into the trees to stay safe, to stay safe and easily succumb to the poison arrows used by local hunters. Mm-hmm. And there are the lion killers. Massive apes, which seldom climb trees, are darker and braver and apparently unaffected by the poison arrows. Wow. In 1898, a Belgian officer returning from the Congo provided the Tervuren Museum in Brussels with three gorilla skulls, which he had collected in northern Congo. This was an odd discovery, however, as the location is about halfway between the extreme edges of the western and eastern distributions of any gorilla populations. Hmm. The legends and this finding led researchers to conduct various expeditions to seek out the population in Central Africa. In 1908, two apes were shot near a place called Bondo in northern Congo. Their skulls and two others found in local dwellings had the crests characteristic of gorillas, but they were unusual enough for taxonomists of the time to classify them as a separate subspecies. Interesting. After that, no further specimens of the mysterious subspecies had been recorded. It was not until the mid-90s that Carl Amann, a Swiss wildlife photographer and anti-bushmeat campaigner, took up the quest to rediscover these missing gorillas. When Carl first visited the region in 1996, he was uh, following a hunch that he should be looking for gorillas. Hmm. Instead, he discovered yet another skull that had dimensions like that of a chimpanzee, but with a prominent crest like that of a gorilla. Interesting. Amon then purchased a photograph from poachers that captured an image of what looked like immense chimpanzees. 
A mom was also able to measure a fecal dropping three times as big as a chimpanzee dung and footprints as large or larger than those of a gorilla. So we're talking about a uh, big chimpanzee that can really poop. Yes, and stomp around with big old feets. Amon later returned to search an area described by a bushmeat hunter, this time accompanied by an international group of ape researchers. Although they did not find a live so-called billy ape, they did find several well-worn ground nests, characteristic of gorillas rather than chimpanzees, but located in swampy riverbeds. The first scientist to actually see the billy apes on further explorations, uh, and one re- uh, originally recruited by Amon, was Dr. Shelley Williams, a specialist in primate behavior. Quote, We could hear them in the trees, about ten meters away, and four suddenly came rushing through the bush towards me. If this had been a mock charge, they would have been screaming to intimidate us. These guys were quiet, hmm. and they were huge. They were coming in for the kill, but as soon as they saw my face, they stopped and disappeared. Kind of crazy. Interesting. That's a very spooky story. Indeed. The unique characteristics they exhibit just don't fit into the other groups of apes, said Williams. At the very least, we have a unique, isolated chimp culture that's unlike any that's been studied. And, accordingly, based on mitochondrial DNA testing of fecal samples, researchers believe the billy ape to be a very inbred population in which even a large number of animals could share identical or near-identical haplotypes of chimpanzee. Hmm. Billy ape reports have also been investigated by Esteban Sarmiento of Monster Quest fame slash infamy. You've maybe seen this guy. He's the one they always call in for the footprints where he's like, is real. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. (laughs) Fucking real guys. Uh, Who has said he thinks, quote, there is a strong possibility that south of Billy on the other side of the Uele River, there may be gorillas, and this would seem an important area to turn our attention to, unquote. Scientists working within these forests south of the Ueli, however, have found no such evidence, nor heard of any such reports from local communities. Nonetheless, it remains an important research region based on the discovered presence of other flagship species, such as chimpanzees and elephants. Basically, what are the billy apes? They seem to be chimpanzees, but how do they get so big? That's what researchers are looking around for. So if we could find a population of gorillas nearby, it would be informative because that could help maybe explain why they have the sagittal crest, these billy apes, which yeah. is a trait found uh, just in gorillas usually. So in June of 2006, British Science Weekly reported that Cleve Hicks and colleagues from the University of Amsterdam had completed a year-long hunt for the billy apes during which they were able to observe the creatures for a total of 20 full hours. Pretty substantial amount of time for such an elusive species. Both behavioral observations of these individuals and further DNA samples recovered from feces reaffirmed the classification of these apes in the chimp subspecies Pantroglodytes uh, schweinfurthii. Ooh. As covered in a Guardian article from July 2007, what we have found is this completely new chimpanzee culture, said Mr. Hicks. Previously, researchers had only managed to snatch glimpses of the animals or take photos of them using camera traps, but Mr. Hicks used local knowledge to get closer to them and photograph them. Continuing, quote, We were told of this sort of fabled land out west by one of our trackers who goes out there to fish. I call it the Magic Forest. It's a very special place. Mr. Hicks reports that he found a unique chimp culture, for example, unlike, uh, sorry, a unique chimp culture. For example, unlike their cousins in other parts of Africa, the chimps regularly bed down for the night in nests on the ground. Hmm. Around a fifth of the nests he found were there rather than in the trees, as would be expected normally. 
quote, if they're really big, then it doesn't matter how uh, unprotected they might be because they aren't so afraid. Essentially so. Uh, although, following quote, how can they get away with sleeping on the ground when there are lions, leopards, hmm. golden cats around, as well as other dangerous animals like elephants and buffalo, said Mr. Hicks. Quote, I don't like to paint them with, uh, I don't like to paint them as being more aggressive, but maybe they do prey on some of these predators and the predators kind of leave them alone. Hmm. Mr. Hicks said that the animals also have what he calls a smashing culture. <laughs> <laughs> A blunt but effective way of solving problems. He has found hundreds of snails and hard-shelled fruits smashed for food. <laughs> Seen chimps carrying termite mounds to rocks to break them open and also found a turtle that was almost certainly smashed apart by chimps and not his truck. Jesus Christ. Like chimp populations in other parts of Africa, the billy chimps use sticks to fish for ants, but here the tools are up to 2.5 meters long, which is pretty awesome. Wow. The most exciting thing about this population of chimps, though, is that it is much bigger than anyone realized and may be one of the largest remaining continuous populations of the species left in Africa. Mr. Hicks and his colleague, Jeron Swinkles, surveyed an area of 7,000 square kilometers and found chimps everywhere. Their unique culture was uniform throughout. Hmm. So how about some physiological dimensions? Lay them on me. The billy ape is reported to often walk bipedally. Standing five to five and a half feet tall, or just, you know, around 1.5 meters, with the overall appearance of a giant chimpanzee. Their footprints, which range from 28 to 34 centimeters long, are larger than their largest common chimp and gorilla footprints, which average 26 centimeters to 29, uh, respectively. According to Dr. Williams, uh, they have a very flat face, a wide muzzle, and their brow ridge runs straight across and overhangs. Their hair seems to turn gray very early in life, but instead of turning gray-black like a gorilla, they turn gray all over. Hmm. Um, they develop uniform gray for independently of age and sex, which success, uh, suggests that graying takes place early in life, uh, whereas in all known gorilla species, only males gray as they age. And they only gray on their back, you said? Only on the backs. Okay, that's cool. Hence the term. Silverback. Billy ape skulls have the prominent brow ridge and may sometimes have a sagittal crest similar to that of a gorilla, but other morphological measurements are more like those of chimpanzees. Uh, only one of the many skulls found at Billy had a sagittal crest, thus it cannot yet be considered typical for the population. Though I kind of made it sound like it was earlier. Yeah. Uh, chimpanzee skulls are 190 to 210 millimeters long, but four out of five Billy ape skulls measured more than 220 millimeters, so well beyond the end of the normal chimpanzee range. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so there you go. A great case of legend turned scientific reality. I love these kinds of research stories. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things I really like about this. Go One on, yeah. is that it started out when you were giving examples of white people first encountering just normal wildlife that had been known about for eons in an area they hadn't been right. to before. Be like, oh, it's some weird monster. Right. But then this kind of slowly becoming, oh, it's something that people who live there also talk about too. So that's a little bit uh, nice to have that like angle of, hey, this isn't just something that was made up entirely by Europeans. Right. This specific thing, the Billy Ape, is something that, oh, yeah, they live up there. We've seen them before kind of thing people who but they're strange, are from the yeah. area and they're just they're a little bit different but mm -hmm. i'm not saying oh it's some kind of weird Ooh, like, it's, fucking... it's just like oh it's just another thing that's like the stuff that's already here right other thing i like about this is that it is not an upright ape <laughs> indeed and i'm proud of you Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> and of everyone involved in researching it too not assuming that it's a weird <laughs> cryptid but just saying hey okay it must be just which yes. it makes sense for africa too this is where most of the great apes of the world live and all come from, really all of them come from, mm -hmm. including us. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it makes sense people's first jump to conclusion would be, oh, it must be a different 
population that we don't know about of these things that we do know about. Right. Um, I also do like that they refer to it as a different culture of um, yeah, I like that too. of chimpanzees. Is acknowledging how intelligent they are, and it's not just oh, it's a whole different species. It's like well, it could just be that they are just a different group who have their own way of doing things because right. exactly that's what they do. Just like any different part of the world, you have pe- people who are all the same species. We're all the same, but do things differently sometimes fascinating too on that same end that they would be so numerous mm. and yet contained within that sort of range yeah um so and you can yeah. have xenophobic chimpanzees <laughs> trump's um, favorite no, as you're describing them being a a, a culture of smashing things the smashing like, culture like, wow so we we always say that chimpanzees are like one of our closest non-human relatives like this these specific chimpanzees seem to Really, really be our it. most our closest non-human relatives. Funny that you'd say that too. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Oliver the big chimp. I think I might have. Uh, I'm kind of forgetting the whole story of it, but he he passed away a while ago. But he was in captivity for a good long while and had he was larger than most chimps. Walked around on two feet a lot of the time hmm. and was quite, I guess, communicative. What could you say? as well as had features in his face and just overall dimensions that made people feel like he was some sort of freaky chimp-human hybrid, <laughs> which obviously is not the case. But they do. there have been a few pages suggesting that Oliver was maybe a Billy Ape chimp. Oh, interesting. Which would explain his size and... And just general upright uprightness. Yeah. Though Though chimps are apparently very easily trained to walk upright. Makes um, sense. I mean, I think like, orangutans do that sometimes too. Uh, gorillas, I feel like not as often, at least not for as long. Probably because it's more of a weight thing where it's just harder for them to do that. Well, they got to put their hands behind their neck and walk <laughs> exactly, around. Exactly, which is really <laughs> a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, anyway, so that's a another kind of funky angle. And uh, yeah, Sasquatch is real. <laughs> QED. <laughs> well, I like that very much. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally got to do the gorillas, a monsters, Sasquatch type story thing too that I've been so hungry to do forever. Awesome, yeah, because that makes sense that the first time any person from Europe would see one of something like that, because I mean, people don't really unless you see them in a zoo up close, right, or in the wild if you're lucky. Um, people don't necessarily realize just how huge they are. They're really oh big. Oh my god, yeah. So to see one in the wild for the first time would be pretty frightening, and. uh yeah, it's quite cool. Even for the third time. <laughs> Alrighty, so here's here's my thing. Okay. On April twenty sixth, eighteen seventy four, the Boring. New- <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, go on. The New York World's Sunday front page reported on a letter from German explorer Carl Lecce to a botanist friend. Uh, the article itself referred to Lecce himself as a botanist, but uh, this exact occupation is not to this day altogether clear as what his specific deal was uh he was generally an explorer and stuff but yeah uh go ahead carry on i may know what this is yeah okay the article opened thusly i should have asked beforehand i usually think to in the last number of uh in the last number of grafa and walter's magazine there's a letter in regard to the newly discovered crinoida dagiana from the discoverer carl lecha the eminent botanist, prefaced by some notes from Dr. Emilius Friedlovsky, whose deep research in vegetable physiology has had so many important results. Lech's letter, it appears, was originally addressed to Friedlovsky, and they seem to have been pursuing together for some time a subject of novel and startling interest, 
which is likely to give some remarkable discoveries to science. In the letter, Letcher described how, while traveling through Madagascar, he came into a region of the country occupied by the Makotos, quote, a tribe of whom little was known. <laughs> As Letcher and his party walked along, they noticed the members of the Makotos tribe were silently emerging from the jungle and following behind them. Mm. They came to a spot where a stream wound through the forest, and here they encountered, quote, the most singular of trees. <laughs> uh, Letcher provided a detailed description of it. So here's a, a prolonged quote. You can imagine a pineapple eight feet high and thick in proportion, resting upon its base and denuded of leaves. You'd have a good idea of the trunk of the tree, which, however, was not the color of an anana, which I guess is referring to a pineapple, but a dark, dingy brown and apparently hard as iron. Hmm. From the apex of this truncated cone, at least two feet in diameter, eight leaves hung sheer to the ground, like doors swung back on their hinges. These leaves, which were joined to the top at the tree at regular intervals, were about 11 or 12 feet long and shaped very much like the leaves of the American agave, or century plant. Mm-hmm. They were two feet through in their thickest part and three feet wide, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn, very convex on the outer, but now under, surface, and on the inner, now upper surface, slightly concave. This concave face was thickly set with strong, thorny hooks, like those upon the head of the teasel, I don't know what a teasel is. Uh, these leaves, hanging thus limp and lifeless, dead green in color, had in appearance the massive strength of oak fiber. Hmm. The apex of the cone was a round, white, concave figure, like a smaller plate set within a larger one. This was not a flower, but a receptacle, and there exuded into it a clear, treacly liquid, honey-sweet, and possessed of violent, intoxicating, and soporific properties. Hmm. From underneath the rim, so to speak, of the... Uh, undermost plate, a series of long, hairy green tendrils stretched out in every direction towards the horizon. These were seven or eight feet long each and tapered from four inches to half an inch in diameter, yet they stretched out stiffly as iron rods. Above these, from between the upper and under cup, six white, almost transparent palpi reached, uh, st- reached, reared themselves toward the sky, twirling and twisting with a marvelous incessant motion, and, mm. yet constantly reaching upwards. Thin as reeds and frail as quills, apparently, they were yet five or six feet tall and were so constantly and vigorously in motion with such a subtle, sinuous, silent throbbing against the air that they made me shudder in spite of myself with their suggestion of serpents flayed yet dancing on their tails. Wow. So pretty evocative. Big scary plant, basically. (laughs) (laughs) The the Makotos, when they saw the tree... That was the alternate version of his letter is, I saw a big scary plant. (laughs) Exactly. At which point, uh, Friedlowski was like, you have to tell me more than that. Yeah, tell me just a little more. He's like, okay, get ready. Buckle the fuck up. I have so many details that will be a little bit confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So the the Makotos, when they saw the tree, began shouting, Tepe, Tepe. And they surrounded one of their women and forced her, at javelin point, to climb the tree until she reached the apex of the cone that contained the treacly fluid. Tsik, tsik, the Makotos men cried, which meant drink, drink. I do like that this is a not very, like, not at all known tribe, but they totally know the translation of the things they're saying. Yeah, exactly. Obediently, she drank, and then almost instantly, the slender palpy of the tree came alive, quivered, and seized her around her neck and arms. She screamed, but the tendrils gripped her tighter, strangling her, till her cries became a a gurgled moan. The contraction of the tendrils um, caused the fluid of the tree to stream down its trunk, mingled with, quote, the blood and oozing viscera of the victim, which is pretty pretty, uh, pretty horrible description. So, again, yeah, if 
if it was a tour, he sent a letter. It was like, hey, I saw a scary tree. And he's like, well, tell me more. Like, all right, I'm going to tell you so much more than you want to know. Uh, The Makotas rushed forward to drink this mixture of blood and tree fluid. Then ensued, quote, a grotesque and indescribably hideous orgy. Uh, Lecce concluded his letter by explaining that he studied the carnivorous tree for three more weeks, during which time he found several other smaller specimens of it, of it in the forest. He saw one of the trees eat a lemur. He named <laughs> the species Crinoida dagiana because, quote, when its leaves are in action, it bears a striking resemblance to that well-known fossil, the crinoid lily stone, or St. Cuthbert's beads. Um, these are just a huge thing from the like Ordovician and Devonian period. They're all over the place. I don't know how many listeners we have in Missouri, but the entire state is basically just made of crinoid fossils. It's super cool. Wow. All over the That's place cool. in all the limestone there. But yeah, they look like people for a while wondered if they were plants or animals. They decided that they are animals, kind of related to corals in a, a loose, distant way. I want to look at um, crinoids. C-R-I-N-O-I-D. I-D, yes. And so that's probably the reason he named it because it kind of reminded him of crinoid. They have like a kind of stem thing and then the top sort of an anemone type of thing going on. So it reminded him of that. I see. Um, and Dajiana referred to Dr. Bawu Daji, a quote, liberal-minded, intelligent Parsi physician of Bombay. Ah, yes, the crinoid. There you go, yeah. So we'll, we'll post a picture of a crinoid for, for reference. For crinoid out loud. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the other part of the name was something he named after was, like, a scientist that he apparently knew and liked. Cool. So that is the general story of all of this. So you do know the story, do you not? I've heard a variation on it. it um, the version I heard, the tree, like, engulfs the woman and, like, wraps her in leaves so tightly that, like, you can still see her features practically, but oh, she's, wow. like, dying. Hmm. And it's similarly, like, really graphic and, like, a little bit weirdly, like, she was sort of naked and, like, I was checking that out, there too. There was a version that I read that it may have been part of the quote from the actual letter, because this, this is all from this article thing that I was reading about from a source that I will link to. So when I was saying quote, I was referring to quotes from the letter. I see. The whole overall quote of this thing. But a longer version of a quote from the letter I saw, may, uh, I think it was that anyway, was, yeah, more graphic in the description of the, the violent thing that has ensued, but describing her screams becoming like like mad laughter as it happened, yeah. too, from the so kind of like the, it, the the fluid she drank being like hallucinogenic. struck me as some sort of Victorian era sort of violent fantasy weird shit from some guy yes <laughs> and that is pretty on point so um uh so but but people really took to this story and well uh, it's got the allure for sure and i'm interested to hear what else you have to say yeah so inspired by the Lecce account chase salmon osborne governor of the state of michigan from 1911 wow. to 1913 traveled to madagascar to search for the tree now why did he name himself after his hobby and then his last name <laughs> um well his middle name was that he actually was a fisher to begin with a fisherman to begin with mm-hmm. chase salmon osborne uh <laughs> he did not succeed in locating one but claimed that it was well known to natives of the island he also alleged that western missionaries believed in its existence and that from the earliest times madagascar had been known as quote the land of the man-eating tree. Mm. Uh, however, cryptozoologist Dr. Roy P. Mackle in his book Searching for Hidden Animals was unable to discover the existence of the particular tree, nor any, uh, oh, sorry, unable to discover the existence of Lecce, the guy who had found this tree, nor any background history concerning him. Hmm. This stands to reason, however, because he's a cryptozoologist, not a crypto uh, bi- uh, biographist. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. 
Um, I had misread that per- part at first thing, and he had looked for the plant and not found it and said he was not a cryptobotanist, and that was my joke that I had tried to write. That's not what it actually quoted, <laughs> so it doesn't make sense. You're right. Um, in addition, he observed that the different specialized structures of the tree re- um, described seemed to draw from several different groups of plants. Turns out. Um, the highly animated nature of the palpi are unlike any feature of any known plant species. Michael concedes, uh, concedes, however, that it might be a highly embellished account of a less dramatic plant. Mm-hmm. So he may be saying, oh, maybe he saw a weird plant and just kind of went over the top with a description of what it looked like. Happens all the time to people seeing from the West seeing stuff for the first time and then oh, reporting like, back to Europe. It's the West's favorite thing to do. Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be cool to now look at maybe some uh, known carnivorous plants of the world. Hell yeah. Can I talk about those a little bit? So we know of... The, I mean, I think everyone has at least at some point heard of some kind of plant that eats bugs. That's a pretty, pretty common thing. The reason for that usually, they tend to live in either kind of boggy, swampy environments or else um, they're like epiphytes. They're a plant that lives on top of another plant, like the surface of another plant, has epi. Mm-hmm. In general, it's they live in an area where they are kind of deprived of nutrients, mm-hmm. mostly nitrogen specifically, and they can get that from eating bugs <laughs> so there's a bunch of different kinds of them which is kind of cool so you got your pitfall trap style plants which have specialized leaves that hold water and or some kind of digestive thing mm-hmm. these include pitcher plants and even some carnivorous bromeliads too that's cool the center of bromeliads tend to collect water and some of that's them right. have evolved to be able to digest uh stuff and absorb the nutrients which makes sense because bromeliads are an epiphyte they just grow on like you know in the mosses and stuff on branches of trees in the tropics very cool um, some can grow on the ground too, but it's you know there's a lot of different kinds doing different things, and also with different types of pitfall trap kind of carnivorous plants. Some of them have their own digestive enzymes they use. Some of them just like use bacteria to help them, and they kind of both benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are what are called lobster pot traps. So it's based on the idea of a lobster pot. Have you ever seen one of those? They have a whole kind of um, they have. You put bait inside. That's the main reason that things come inside. But then um, there's what's called the kitchen. Well, what The parlor and the kitchen. So lobsters huh, will wander okay. into the parlor. I think. I'm trying to remember. I'm from Maine. I can't remember. But then they want to have sex in the kitchen. Exactly. <laughs> they wander into the parlor, and then there's bait in the kitchen. And the net is kind of... Um, it. What's what I'm looking for? It. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sex with the lobster. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It... Um, it gets narrower. What is the term that I'm looking for for that? I don't know. But mm, the net entrance constraint, to get... Constricts as it goes? Or? Sure, whatever. But as the lobsters walk into there to get to the food, uh, it kind of gets it, it gets tighter and tighter. So they, they are able to get in, and they have a hard time finding their way back out again. It's much harder to find their way back out. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with lobster pot traps. It's some kind of opening into a specialized leaf that is a kind of enclosed thing where digestive stuff happens. Uh, but there are a bunch of hairs on the leaf called trichomes. If you find any fuzzy leaf, any, like hairs on a leaf, they're called trichomes, guys, hmm. are all pointed in one direction, so it's hard for them to come back out the way they came in. So it kind of it leads them towards the area where they get eat, it <laughs> eated, um, eight, where they get eight. That's what I was trying to say. I was gonna say eaten, and then I decided halfway through to say it in a silly way, and then I said it in a too silly way. <laughs> um. So then uh, there are sticky plants. The most well known is the sundew, which is pretty cool. Yes. Have them actually, right here. In New Hampshire, even mm-hmm. if you go to um, any bog, you'll find them there. I I say that I've gone to the nearby bog, right, uh, Spruce Hole Bog. Well, we went there too, didn't we? We did, indeed. Yeah, very cool place. No, it um, was not season to see them though. I don't think. What's that? 
I don't think it would have been this season to oh, see. Oh, yeah, we were them. there in December, weren't we? Yeah. So it was, everything Things was frozen. Were pretty well but frozen. we saw a lot of frozen pitcher plants, which was pretty we did. cool. Yeah. But I've been back in the springtime and stuff. I, I, I have to go, maybe like now would be a good time, right in the middle of summer, to look for sundews because they do supposedly live in that specific bog. I just haven't seen them yet. But their deal is they have a lot of sticky stuff on at the end of their hair things and then fly stick to them and then get wrapped up in it. In this case, it's kind of similar in some ways to the description from the Madagascar story. It mm-hmm. secretes gooey stuff and then envelops its prey, but it's not so dramatic in the way that it does any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, more dramatic, though, are the, the old snap traps. So the most famous <laughs> of all of these, of course, is the Venus flytrap. That's what everyone thinks of when they think of a carnivorous plant. Mm-hmm. Those live in the Carolinas here in eastern North America. I had those when I was a kid, and I would just consistently kill them because I would overfeed them. (laughs) But I thought they were the coolest thing in the world. They are so cool because they have three, like they have trigger hairs inside of the the open maw thing, Mm -hmm. and they have to be struck like three of them within a certain amount of time between triggers. To activate the... Because it it requires energy to actually move the leaves like that, and it doesn't want to have a false alarm if like water drops on it, or if just like something blows in there. It wants to make sure there's an alive thing walking around inside of there, and that's how it does it. So evolution being the coolest. Yeah, you got to remember, you know, we take it for granted that pitcher or pitcher uh, Venus flytraps can snap shut like that, but in the plant world, that is like <laughs> we should do the math. <laughs> The acceleration <laughs> required for a plant to close a plant that with quickly. no muscles. It has to yes. be all to do with just like water channels moving around and changing where pressure is to cause that to happen. Super awesome thing to be capable it's of. It's amazing, yeah. And yeah, so they're, they're the more well-known ones that do that. But there's also the endangered water wheel plant. What? Which is basically the same thing, but underwater to catch freshwater invertebrates. That's cool. Which I'd never heard of until I was looking into this today. A lot of kids played water wheel plant when I was in college. When we were just hanging out. <laughs> I said a different thing. Uh, yeah, no, it was be, a wagon wheel wagon. attempt. <laughs> oh, oh, I was thinking it was a bong reference. Okay. Oh, water wheel plant. No. Yeah, okay. That makes sense, too. Wagon it's wheel. such yeah. a reach. That's all right. Uh, the few dozen remaining wild populations of the waterwheel plant are in every continent except the Americas. So you have in um, just the Carolinas in North America, you have the Venus flytrap, and then pretty much everywhere else except in North or South America, you have waterwheel things. Uh, there's also what are called bladder traps. So this is kind of like bladder-shaped leaves, kind of a, a, a sort of, not like a pitcher, but like even more enclosed than that. And they actually create... A slight vacuum inside that sucks up Ooh. prey. So it's cool as hell. These are all just like the different kinds of existing carnivorous plants that there are. They do it to get extra nitrogen. They do it by eating bugs. They do not kill whole humans, like, humans or livestock or whatever. They there's just that's too too involved. I wonder if anyone ever stuck their finger down a pitcher plant and just left it there for a long time. I think it would take a long time for it to start to do any damage. And if anything, it probably just cause like some irritation of your skin. Because mm-hmm. like the digestive enzymes are not super strong, and in any of these, it's like yeah, they they are able to break down bugs. Um, mm-hmm. They can't get much beyond that, but yeah, and, and probably supply. small mammals and shit too. So I think that I think Very some small. of like uh, Asian pitcher plants in the Penthes, they have frogs that might maybe fall in, but um, other ones specifically like some water bugs use pitcher plants as a place to just live. Oh wow! So it's yeah. um it's yeah it depends right. But anyway, back to the Madagascar devil tree. Mm-hmm. More recently, the Czech explorer Ivan Makarla led an expedition to Madagascar in 1998 in search of the tree, which he refers to as the Tepe, 
based hmm. on people saying Tepe, Tepe, when they saw the tree. He's like, oh, that's what it's called. So he went in 98. So, yeah, just I know. It's so not true. long ago at all. Uh, while he was unable to uncover any direct evidence in support of uh, uh, Leche's or Osborne's claims, he uncovered something else just as intriguing. His expedition instead learned about the Komanga killer tree, which only grows in one place on the island. Hmm. The botanical mystery is supposedly extremely poisonous when it flowers. Indeed, the Makarla expedition took gas masks to protect themselves. What? But although the tree was not in blossom, they observed the skeleton of a bird and tortoise under it. Whoa. So another cryptic plant may or may not exist, but not quite as dramatic. Like, oh, it just has a toxic kind of gas that it emits that can <laughs> kill some, some animals near it. Still. Which doesn't make a ton of sense evolutionarily why it would do that, but whatever. He also discovered that in 1935, a former British Army officer called L. Hurst spent some time in Madagascar and while there, took photographs of an unknown species of tree with the skeletons of various sizable animals underneath it. Was this the Kumanga tree or could it have been the elusive Tepe? <laughs> According to Makarla, these photographs were printed in an, uh, in an as yet unidentified publication. So it's that one book where all the photos and somehow videos that mm-hmm. we are promised repeatedly on this show <laughs> all end up. Mm-hmm. That one book, oh, it's out there, but it, we, we just can't find it. Mm-hmm. But that said, I do totally believe that such a photo exists, and I believe that it is simply a self-serving dumb shit move to assume not that it is a tree frequented by a leopard with its previous kills underneath, but instead <laughs> that the tree ate the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in such a case, the photo would have to have been taken you know, on the mainland. There are no leopards right. in Madagascar. But again, if you're willing to suspend your disbelief so hard that you say a tree ate a bunch of large vertebrates, right. probably also cool with saying that a photo taken in, say, Zambia was actually taken in Madagascar. Indeed. So what happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on here? Almost every detail in the story was fictitious. Yes. So all of um, all of the stuff I've been quoting from so except far Except for has the stuff been, about the tree. Except for that part, yeah. <laughs> Everyone who was eaten by the tree wasn't real, but the tree did eat people. <laughs> right. Um... This is all. So all I got this. Uh, the quotes are from the letter. The mm-hmm. rest of this article I was reading from are from hoaxes.org. Oh, nice. So I, usually I say my sources to begin with, but I didn't want to spoil that too quickly. Uh, so, <laughs> so they say none of the people who were mentioned in it existed. Not Carl Lecce, uh, Doctor Emilius Friedlovsky, or Doctor Bawu Daji. Nor were the Makodos a real tribe. The tree itself, most significantly, was pure fantasy, a gothic horror of the colonial era. Yes. So, however, the source to which the story was credited, uh, which in the letter said, quote, Grefa and Walther's magazine published at Karlsruhe, or Karlsruhe, I don't know how you say it, but Karlsruhe, was a real publication. Mm-hmm. Or at least there was a scientific journal founded by two prestigious German surgeons, Karl Ferdinand von Grefa and Philipp Franz von Walther, titled Journal der Chirurgie und Augenheilkunde, Journal of Surgery and Ophthalmology. Uh, <laughs> I try, and I'm sorry, guys. You did good. However, this journal was published in Berlin, not Karlsruhe. Also, it's uh, it began publication in 1820 and ended in 1850, following the death of Walther. So, by 1874, when this thing came out in the New York world, there hadn't been a new issue of the journal for 24 years. Wow. In other words, the journal was not the original source of the man-eating tree story. Nope. So, upon its publication, the man-eating tree story immediately attracted attention and many other newspapers reprinted it for the benefit of their readers. The June 1874 issue of The Garden magazine noted, quote, there is a harrowing description of a man-eating plant going the rounds of the papers. 
Say, hey, you guys hear about this? Have you heard about this other story? <laughs> However, unlike most media hoaxes of the 19th century, which attracted attention for a few weeks and then were forgotten, interest in the man-eating tree endured. Mm-hmm. If we had someone going in 1998 to look for it, then yeah, big time. But uh, several years later, rep- uh, so yeah, several years later, reprints of the story were still appearing in magazines such as Frank Leslie's Pleasant Hours and The Farmer's Magazine. Hmm. There were some notes of skepticism. For instance, in February 1875, so the year after this was first published, the Christian Union noted, quote, The New York World published a very clever hoax about the man-eating tree of Madagascar. Hmm. No doubt many a credulous reader was taken in thereby. <laughs> so we're getting straight into the same territory as the well-to-health thing for episode 72. Yes, People indeed. just totally running with what was meant to be just a total hoax. It wasn't until 1888 that the story was fully exposed as a hoax. And its author identified. In 1888, Frederick Maxwell Summers had launched a new magazine, Current Literature. And in the second issue, he reprinted the story of the man-eating tree and provided information about its origin. Mm, so he said cool. there, quote, It was written years ago by Mr. Edmund Spencer for the New York World. While Mr. Spencer was connected with that, uh, with that paper, he wrote a number of stories, all being remarkable for their appearance of truth, the extraordinary imagination displayed, and for their somber tone. Mr. Spencer was a master of the horrible, some of his stories <laughs> approaching closely to those of Poe in this regard. Like many clever men, his best work is hidden in the files of the daily press. This particular story of the Crinoida Dagiana, the devil tree of Madagascar, was copied far and wide and caused many a hunt for the words of Dr. Friedlovsky. It was written as the result of a talk with some friends during which Mr. Spencer maintained that all that was necessary to produce a sensation of horror in the reader was to greatly exaggerate some well-known and perhaps beautiful thing. Hmm. He then stated that he would show what could be done with the sensitive plant when this method of treatment was applied to it. Mm -hmm. The devil tree is, after all, only a monstrous variety of the Venus flytraps so common in North Carolina. Mr. Spencer died about two years ago in Baltimore, Maryland. So Hmm. he was just making almost a bet to his friends. Like, I bet people would totally go for this. All I have to do is just exaggerate a description of a kind of plant they've already sort of heard of, and they would totally eat it, uh, eat it up. It's so illuminating in that way. It's yeah. cool. Uh, problem is, people didn't really acknowledge this acknowledgement of the hoax, right? And kept on believing it for about a century afterwards. There's your insight into human psychology, too. Yes. People believe what they want to believe. And if it sounds super exciting or whatever, people are just into it. Yes. So now I assumed when first reading all of this, and before I knew that it was a straight up hoax that it was just another shitty depiction of Africa in general as this deep, right. dark, unknowable place right. that the author was happy to describe anyone indigenous to such a place in as racist a way as possible. I did omit the quote where he referred to them as savages, but um, yeah. yeah. I still basically stand by this take on it, maybe even more so now that I know that it's purely a work of fiction from the ground up, but in particular, the human sacrifice part of it struck me as particularly over the top. But this was just this yeah. just goes to show how ignorant I am about the world, especially when it comes to anthropology and human civilizations across time and space. Hmm. I had no idea how many cultures around the world practiced human sacrifice at some time or other. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that at least a couple of the indigenous civilizations of Africa are included in that number. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Some of whom lived in as close to Madagascar as Tanganyika, which is now modern day Tanzania, which is like just across that little patch of water. Right, right, right. In Madagascar. So, at least geographically, it's not wholly implausible. Mm-hmm. Now, none of this excuses anything about the hoax part of it as far as the depiction of the people there. 
seems pretty transparently like, aha, this sounds to my white Western ears like something truly savage and shocking. Oh, it's this will create such a sensation. Exactly what's happening, yeah. But, I mean, possible defense of Spencer. We have no idea of his personal beliefs or his politics or any of that. It's entirely possible that it was meant as satire. Like, all these rubes will believe any bullshit story you throw right. at them if it Let follows the narrative like, they already want to believe. I'll watch play how, on their... Yeah, watch yeah. how dumb they'll all be about this. Right. Which, if that were the case, yeah, he was absolutely right, because very dumb. Forever, apparently. Forever, up until uh, the Matrix, pretty much. But yeah, as I get older, I am, for whatever reason, less and less willing to give really anyone the benefit of the doubt anymore. No. But yeah, it was all just some thrown-together gothic horror made in America. The end. Or is it? <laughs> in researching this whole Madagascar mandating tree thing, I found a number of very similar stories from all around the world. Mm. Oh, cool. At a cursory glance, these didn't all seem to be made up just by white people who visiting the area. So it might be fun to cover these in a future app if it does turn out there's more there than that. It does make me think of... What plant is it now? I'm struggling to recall. I want to say it's from the Andes, and it has barbed leaves, much mm. like an aloe plant would. And they think these large barbed leaves are indeed intended to snare like uh, sheep and other things. Oh, damn. Essentially, the plant does eat the animal. But it doesn't use this dramatic, you know, series of tubes and leaves and things. It basically... Just passively grabs stuff? It's just, yeah, it's built to snare. Things get snared on it. They can't get away and they starve. And when they die, as their body decomposes, that feeds the plant. So that sounds like some of the stories I've seen in here where it's saying, oh, that it doesn't... Different plants that aren't actually eating the thing, but they manage to kill it. One of them was saying, like, yeah, the poisonous cloud of gas thing kills mm-hmm. the kills the animals, mm-hmm. and then they fertilize the ground around it when they rot. Right. Let me actually real quick. Sure. While you look that up, I'll just I'll just continue on here. So yeah. It seems that there is a strong element of boy, wouldn't it be scary if plants could eat people? <laughs> just in stories across cultures, and I feel like there have been some uh, recent horror movies that have tried to go that route with varying degrees of success. Right. So you have things like, isn't uh, the happening, like plants killing people, not necessarily eating them, but just getting them to kill themselves. And um, (laughs) actually our friends at Real Life Ghost Stories just reviewed recently the movie, uh, the, is it The Ruins? That like in, um, in Central America, like Mayan ruins and there are vines that are eating people and stuff, which sounds like a a truly terrible movie, but another recent-ish attempt, it's actually based on a book, so, you know, for a little bit further back than when the I movie see. came out, but still pretty modern look at, oh, what if plants killed people? Right, exactly. Um, I was correct. Puya chilensis, uh, also known as the sheep-eating plant. Sheep-eating plant, damn. A terrestrial bromeliad originating from the arid hillsides of Chile, uh, an evergreen perennial, forms large, dense rosettes of gray-green strap-like leaves edged with hook- hooked spines. The flower itself looks like a medieval mace, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, it can stand up to two meters in height. A big plant. It's a big old plant. Eat a whole alpaca with that kind of height. Uh, the plant is believed to be hazardous to sheep and birds, which may become entangled in the spines of the leaves. If the animal dies, the plant may gain nutrients as the animal decomposes nearby, though this has not been confirmed, turns okay. out. For this reason, Puya chilensis has been earned the nickname sheep-eating plant, if true, this would make Puya chilensis a proto-carnivorous plant. Fibers from the leaves are used to weave durable fishing nets. 
that's pretty cool. It's, it's a neat, it'd be a neat look at like an evolutionary transitional phase of how plants might start to use killing animals to their advantage. Just sort of inc- accidentally almost. Yeah, and, and how they could like, then be hmm. over time kind of... Um, Selected for. Yeah, into something more evolved and more even active in some cases. Right. Pretty nifty. Yeah, the the move from passive benefit for being close to something that dies to active, I guess, sequestra- sequestration, of, sequestration yeah. of biological material... That that's that stretch boggles my mind. It's pretty amazing that that would happen at some point. Because like, hey, you got to imagine it was by degrees. Yeah, you know, something having trouble surviving with, um, like in an area where it's hard because there's not much nitrogen usually. Right. Like, but something that was able to make use of the nitrogen that it got out of something that accidentally died near it right. or or on it or something, and then slowly the things that were the most able to cause things to die near them or on them did better and better better. and all of that has to be within the framework of that nutrient starved environment yes because anything that evolves ever is only because it happened to just make things survive or reproduce or both more than the stuff around them in a particular environment exactly it you got to remember nature works with parsimony so the most complex things we see today is the most simple solution to the problem at hand yeah and it's never <laughs> it's almost never the best solution no because that's another quote i've always loved is evolution is not efficient it's just sufficient sufficient exactly it's just a it worked and so it lasted so here we are yeah exactly so pretty pretty because, wild yeah because there is no active like planning involved in it it's just shit happens by accident and if it works out well hey more of that shit happens right exactly (laughs) the story of our lives am i right everyone (laughs) yes uh so yeah that was our august visit to africa and we hope you guys enjoyed we really do want to revisit the continent a lot more on the show on its own terms when we go later like you luckily had a story about stuff that's just actually there and people from there and not from there seeing it and experiencing it but there are so many countries in Africa and so many cultures and so many incredible stories to be told. And uh, this was mine. I know I didn't feel like I did it justice at all today. Really, the scariest part I found in all of this isn't in the stories as far as them being scary stories, but instead how clear it was just in researching stuff for a goofy little podcast, how heavily Africa felt the brunt of colonialism. Oh, so like, true. Yeah. It was so hard to find stories that weren't like about something, some monster there. That's like, oh well, it's something that a white person said they saw when they came back, or right. any of that. If our stories don't come back to genocide of the First Nations in the Americas, it'll come back to chattel slavery, murder, and all manner of exploitation in Africa. Yes, good stuff. Not meant to be a huge downer. It's just that we set out to find stories of the spooky and strange in Africa, and it's so goddamn hard to find stuff that white Europeans hadn't gotten their mitts on already. Yeah, it's so true. It's all through that lens in a lot of cases. Yeah, so we will definitely be revisiting all of the vast continent of Africa in many other contexts as the show goes on. I'm sure. We already have visited it it in the past as well. Yes, and it's a cool place to go, so we'll be back. Oh, yes. Um, Please do consider leaving an old review on the old apple podcasts page yeah or if you really like us check us out on patreon, check us on patreon. Cool. we got cool stuff coming yeah next week we'll continue our journey of august, august around, around the, the world world <laughs> we'll be going to india yes the indian subcontinent 
and see what kind of cool stories we encounter there. Oh, yeah. And we hope you'll join us. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>